Good morning. How are you all doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you. I can hear the worship team behind me. How are you doing? How are you doing? So, hey guys, if, you, if this is your first time visiting us here at Hosanna Christian Fellowship here in our room, or if you're joining us online, we want to say welcome to all of you. We're so glad you're here to worship with us today. This morning, we're going to take some time to look at a very, very significant event in the future of God's church. Jesus is coming back again. And that is something we so, so look forward to. This event has been the greatest hope, the thing the church has looked forward to so much for the last 2,000 years. We've been expecting, anticipating, looking forward to, can't wait for this event to happen because it is the day that is gonna change everything in our future from that point forward. You know, but what we're also going to be doing today is taking communion together. So if you're in the room, hopefully you got your communion emblems as you came in through the foyer today. If you're at home, please make sure you get your communion, uh, communion emblems ready. Because, you know, when Jesus instituted communion, he said to do this, to do this together in remembrance of him. And we do it to remember that he came the first time. He came once to deal with sin, to deal completely with sin. He took the full weight of the wrath of God against sin on the cross. And Jesus there on the cross shed his perfect, sinless, spotless blood to wash us clean of all the sin we will have ever done and will ever do. And he did that so through our faith in him, we are then given his righteousness, our relationship with our creator is restored, and this grants us a new life. This grants us a born-again life here on earth, a new nature that lives to glorify him in everything we do and everything we say, our behavior, our conduct, to glorify God. And then by living for him to share the truth, the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ that others would be saved at well. And so in and through all of that, as we live for him, to glorify him, to honor him, we eagerly look forward to his return. You know, Scripture has a lot to say about this event. The return of Christ just, just permeates the entire Bible. Next to the, con uh, the topic of faith, it is the most discussed topic in the Scriptures. Over 1,845 times the return of Christ is spoken about or alluded to. One out of every 30 verses in the Bible speak about the second coming of Jesus Christ. One-fifth of the entire Bible, one-fifth, deals with the end of days and or the second coming of Jesus Christ. For every one verse that speaks of his coming, his first coming, eight verses speak about his second coming. For every one verse that speaks of his atonement, two verses speak about his, his uh, second coming, his return. Jesus himself personally referred to his second coming 21 times. Over 50 times in Scripture, we are instructed to be ready for it. And then one of the great promises that Jesus shared in the upper room, that time when he was there with his disciples and instituted communion, he said this, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again and receive you to myself. So Peter, in both of his letters, has been dealing with a group of people in his day that were denying all of that that were denying all of those truths. And these people he calls false prophets. 
or false teachers. And he dealt with that in great detail in chapter two of his letter here in 2 Peter. And as he was dealing with them, one of his overriding points was they got it all wrong. They got it all wrong, they get it all wrong because they got the past wrong, they get the present wrong, and they get the future wrong. And the reason they get it all wrong is because they get Jesus wrong. They're wrong about Jesus and who he is. You know, back in chapter two, verse one of 2 Peter, he said they deny the master who bought them. They're wrong about Jesus. And when you get Jesus wrong, well, you're gonna be wrong about everything. (laughs) You're gonna be wrong about so much. And so, really, to find the truth, the truth of life, the truth of God, the truth of salvation, the truth of who Jesus is, well, you have to start with the way, the truth, and the life. So we're gonna start today by worshiping Jesus Christ. We're gonna open up this morning with a time of worship and praise, and this is an opportunity for us to just put aside everything, put aside life, put aside worries, and just for a moment reflect on who he is. Because not only has he saved you, not only did he shed his blood on the cross for you, securing your salvation, but he secured your salvation forever. Your future is secure. He is coming back for you. Glory is coming. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word. We thank you, God, for who you are. We thank you for the promises, God. We thank you, Lord, for the, for the prophets who foretold these things. We thank you, Lord, that you came uh, to this earth in the flesh and spoke of these things. Lord, we thank, thank you that through your Holy Spirit, you inspired your apostles to write about these things. Lord, our hope is in you. Our hope was in you for our past. You redeemed us. Our hope is in you for our present, God, because you are working in and through us. And our hope is in you for our future. And we can't wait for your return. So Lord, speak to us this morning. Encourage us, God, not only as we are gathered here together to worship you, to get into your word, but to celebrate communion as well, God. We want you to be glorified. We love you so much. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are going to be in 2 Peter chapter 3 verses one through 10 this morning, and picking up from Peter's thought in chapter two, as I said earlier, he had been really, um, really harshly dealing with false teachers and what they do to lead people astray. And so he continues this thought into kind of now encouraging the believers into the truth, the truth of what the word of God says about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in Peter's day, you had scoffers that he calls them here that were scoffing. And, and the, the idea of these scoffers is that when it came to the concept of Jesus returning, Jesus to rule and reign again, Jesus to judge the earth and to set up his kingdom here, they, they scoffed about it. They were just like, yeah, whatever, that's not gonna happen. Now that was happening in Peter's day, and guess what? It's still happening today. When we tell people about Jesus Christ and his imminent return, Specifically, when we try and warn them about it in context of Judgment Day coming on sin, people scoff. They scoff, you know. But here we are, we still look to the future, we still look to the return of Jesus Christ. And, and in these first 10 verses of chapter 3, Peter is, is, is teaching here, as he teaches, he's reassuring his readers of the truth that Jesus is coming back. And he teaches us where to look to know the truth of these events. Specifically in context, there was false teachers trying to teach lies about this. He's going, no, no, this is where you wanna look to, to ground yourself in the truth of this. And he says, first, by looking back at the scriptures, 
The second thing he encourages us to do is to look around at the scoffers. And the third thing is to look ahead to the Savior. And so he starts this chapter by encouraging us to look back. Join me in 2 Peter 3, verse 1. It says, Dear friends, this is now the second letter I have written to you. In both letters, I want to stir up your sincere understanding by way of reminder, so that you recall the words previously spoken by the holy prophets and the command of our Lord and Savior given through your apostles. So what he's opening up here after he just got done saying false teachers bad, false teachers destruction, (laughs) false teachers, you know, really, really bad things coming upon them because God takes truth seriously. He now says, look, um, this is where you want to go for truth. You know, instead of listening to the false prophets and the teachers, instead of being confused by that, look back to the word written by the holy prophets. Look back to the word written. Now, when we look back to the word of the holy prophets, we find um, all over the place that they foretold, they predicted, they prophesied the coming rule and reign of the Messiah. They talked about it a lot. I mentioned some of that earlier. It's all over scripture. And Peter says, I want to stir up your sincere understanding here. When he says sincere understanding, that just means like, look, I I get that you you generally want to know what's true. And so I want to stir that up. I want to stir up your knowledge of truth. I want to stir up your pursuit of truth. And when he says stir up, that phrase means to stimulate your thinking or to wake you up. And I find that an interesting phrase there because sometimes um, we can find ourselves getting a a little bit spiritually drowsy in our walk. Right? Especially the longer you walk with the Lord. It, it, it becomes such a normal, regular part of your life that it can sometimes become routine to us. Right? And we might lose the urgency. We might lose the, the expectancy of what is to come in our future because you know, life is life and we get bogged down. And so he's saying, look, I want to I wake you up. I want to remind you so that you're back to that place of being excited about what's to come for you as a believer. Now, in getting spiritually drowsy, one of the things in my life that stirs me up really well is prophecy. Prophecy does that really good. When you look at prophecy, especially prophecy fulfilled, which is exciting enough, and then you go, well, if all this prophecy was fulfilled, then all these other things that haven't yet been fulfilled are definitely going to be fulfilled. One person said the cure for spiritual lethargy is always scriptural prophecy. So Peter in this section, he goes on to speak on a very great topic, the prophetically foretold second coming of Jesus Christ. And he does that as he says there, so that you recall the words. He wants to stir them up. He wants to awaken them. He wants to energize them to recall the truth they were taught and let that truth just saturate their lives and excite them for living for the Lord. But in this, he also wants the readers to know that, that what he, Peter, and the other apostles have taught them, they didn't just make this stuff up in contrast to what false teachers do. They make stuff up. So Peter wants them to recall that which was spoken by the prophets and the apostles. And you think, okay, what is it precisely he wants them to recall? Well, we find that in verse 10, 2 Peter 3.10. He says, but the day of the Lord will come. The day of the Lord That is what he's specifically wanting to stir them up in this section, to recall, to remember. The day of the Lord, this is like a a mega theme in scriptures, right? Scripture has all kinds of themes, but the day of the Lord, the second coming of Jesus Christ, is one of the largest themes we find in scriptures. This phrase, day of the Lord, is found 19 different times in the Old Testament. Isaiah, 
Jeremiah, Daniel, Joel, Amos, Zephaniah, Zechariah, and on and on, all predict the day of the Lord. One example is in Isaiah 13, 6. He says, wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. In the New Testament, the specific phrase, the day of the Lord, is found four times. And if you go into Matthew 24, Mark chapter 13, Luke chapter 21, you'll find in in those chapters there's conversations that Jesus is having from the Mount of Olives with his disciples, specifically about what's going to be taking place on earth during the time of the day of the Lord. So what is the day of the Lord? Well, the short answer is that it's something really, really, really bad that becomes something really, really, really good. That's the short answer. The longer answer is that the day of the Lord is a still future time when God from heaven is going to dramatically and miraculously intervene in human history here on earth. It's a time that will bring the greatest distress, the greatest time of tribulation that the world has ever known. This time referred to as the day of the Lord is a time when God is unleashing his final judgment Upon the, upon the world, upon the sin of the world and the sin of unbelief. Now, in defining what the day of the Lord is, that word day is key to understanding this because that word day can mean a 24-hour period, right, day. It could mean just when the sun is out, daytime, or the word can mean a longer period of time like a season or an epoch, Right? Like, for example, if we said, we live in the day of social media, do I mean today is the day of social media? No, I mean we live in the era of social media, right? That's, that's how this word day can also be translated. So the concept, the phrase day of the Lord, I believe that is referring to a time period, all right? A time period during which God accomplishes uh, a very special and direct purpose here on earth. And I believe this time period personally begins with the rapture of the church. It includes the seven years of tribulation and it ends with the second coming of Jesus Christ to this earth. Now, if you wanna dig into that into some more detail, I actually dealt with this in a lot more detail in defining what the day of the Lord was. Um, when Paul speaks about it, when I, when I taught on 1 Thessalonians chapter five and 2 Thessalonians chapter two. You could find both of those studies on our YouTube channel. And so if you want to dig more into um, why I believe the day of the Lord is this time period, you can go watch both of those studies and get more detail there. But then in looking in Scripture and what this, day, uh, this time period involves, when you go to Revelations chapter 6 all the way through chapter 19, John really gives the gory details of what takes place during, during this really terrible time on earth. Okay, But what Peter is doing here in verse 2 before he gets into to, to more of that, he, he's elevating the teaching of the apostles up to an equal level with the writing of the prophets. He says, look, look, go back and look at the writings of the holy prophets. And then he also says the commands of Jesus Christ that were given, through his, given to the apostles. He's saying, look, we didn't make this stuff up. Peter's trying to get us to understand that what, what, what he and the other writings that we have in the Bible teach us about Jesus Christ and, and, and the day of the Lord, um, everything that, 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 that they told us is what Jesus told them. 
That's what he's saying there in that phrase in verse two. He's saying, look, what our Lord and Savior has already said to us, and he's simply saying what the holy prophets already predicted, this has been a continuous revelation of what the day of the Lord is, and it's coming. And so Peter's like, I want to stir your minds up back to this truth. Don't forget that this time is coming. Now, it's always a good idea to stir up our minds by, by getting back into the Scripture, obviously, right? We want to read. We want to meditate on Scripture. We want to study it. So that when temptations come, when challenges come, when scoffers come, we can do what verse 2 says, recall the words that were spoken and taught. The greater context is to be able to then discern truth from error when false teachers come and try and tell us Jesus isn't coming back. As a matter of fact, Jesus wasn't even a real person. He's just an idea. As, as a matter of fact, and they come with all these lies, and we want to be able to go, no, that's not right. That's not what the Bible teaches. And so we want to be ready to deal with scoffers as they come. In living this life for the Lord and, and to live it well and to live it in, in eager anticipation of the soon return of Jesus, make sure that you look back at the Holy Scriptures and that is where you get your truth from and study it and dissect it and meditate on it. The second thing that Peter gets into, he really says, um, look around at the scoffers. Look around at the scoffers. So as we let our minds be stirred by what the prophets wrote and what Jesus said and what the apostles recorded, the next thing is to be aware of the scoffers. Look in verse three. He says, above all, be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days scoffing and following their own evil desires. So it's interesting. He says, look, to, to be grounded on truth, look at the truth, Look at the prophecies. <laughs> Look at what Jesus said and was recorded by the apostles. Look at their teachings. But then he goes, above all, scoffers prove the truth of Scripture. Because Scripture predicted the scoffers scoffing all the way till the last days. Not only did the prophets predict the coming in the worldwide reign of the Messiah, but they predicted these scoffers and they recorded their scoffing. We don't have time to look at, the, look at it all together, but if you go into Isaiah 5, Jeremiah 17, Ezekiel chapter 12, Malachi chapter 2, you actually have recorded what the scoffers were scoffing in their time of scoffingness. All right? Now, the word scoffer means simply someone who mocks or ridicules. It's the idea of treating something with contempt or making fun of something like it's stupid. That's scoffing. But to put it another way, a scoffer is someone who treats lightly something that should be taken very seriously. That's a scoffer. Now, you've likely encountered this if you've ever tried to share your faith with anybody. Right, you might be out there trying to tell someone, you know, look, the scripture is trustworthy, right? Jesus is God, Jesus is real. You know, God loves you, God died for you. You know, you've sinned against him, you've broken his commandment, he is the only way of salvation. And they do this. <laughs> right? I like that that's kind of what the word scoff sounds like. Scoff, 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 scoff. They just want to dismiss something. Or, or they accuse you of being a closed-minded idiot. They make fun 
that you believe such ridiculous things, right? This is scoffing. But all that scoffers do, what they say, how they react, it's all language of intimidation. It's all language to intimidate you, to get you to back off your stance on truth. This is what the the mocking and the laughing and the making fun of is all about. But Peter tells us here why scoffers scoff. Why do people take lightly the warning of the coming day of the Lord, the coming judgment of God on this earth and on sin? Why do people take lightly that warning? Why do people take lightly the hope, the offer of salvation in Jesus Christ? Well, he says there because they're following their own evil desires. That is why. People want to continue living in their temporary pleasure. Anything that speaks of the judgment of God, anything that speaks to the world of something or someone holding them accountable for their behaviors, calling those behaviors immoral, they want to erase it. They want to ignore it. They want to diminish it so that they don't have to take it seriously. And one of the most effective ways to make something serious not taken seriously is to make it a joke, to make fun of it to turn it into humor. That is the easiest and quickest way to take something serious and to make it something not serious or not to be taken seriously. And so how do they diminish it? How do they mock this truth? How do they make it sound foolish? Well, we see that in verse four. It says, they say, where is his coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have since the beginning of creation. What they're saying there in summary is that, look, there's no God, there's no judgment, there's no standard of morality. We live in a natural world. We live in a world that just has simply evolved and marched forward ever since the Big Bang. There's no governing standard of morality. There's nobody that we're going to be accountable, accountable to. And, and, and there's never going to be any type of cataclysmic event of God stepping in to judge the world. And the thinking is simply this, look, Big bang, evolution, things will just continue to evolve forever. That's the thinking of the secular world today. It will just continue forever without any divine influence. And thus, there's no judgment day coming. There's no day of the Lord. There's no return of Jesus. Now, what Peter says to this type of thinking is simply, you got it wrong. You got it wrong. And he demonstrates it by using two examples. Look in verse five. He says, they deliberately overlook this. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago and the earth was brought about from water and through water. And through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. So two examples there. He goes, these are two cataclysmic events that happened in the past, you're saying there's never been any type of divine cataclysm or big creation changing stuff, but here's two examples that they deliberately overlook. One is the creation of the earth, which itself is a pretty cosmically massive event, right? Where God stepped into our time domain, our domain of the physical laws and actually stepped in and interrupted the flow of things and created the earth. And the second example he uses there is the great flood which destroyed the entire world. And it's interesting, this particular evidence of past great cataclysm by God, which is then used to prove future 
cataclysm by God and judgment on the earth. This, this particular thing, the flood, more and more geologists around the world in the last five to 10 years have started to, to believe the truth that there was indeed some type of worldwide catastrophe on earth at some point in the past. Why? Because the more and more the study of geology goes on and look at things, the more and more the evidence presents itself that something happened around the entire planet at one time and it was a massive cataclysm. Now, we, we don't live in a, in a closed system in that sense. We live in a, in a um, not in a closed naturalistic system per se. We live in an open system where God can do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. That is what we believe as Christians. Yes, there are predictable patterns in, 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 in the laws of the universe, right? There's observable truths to nature and the cosmos, and you know, there's truths in ecosystems and, and all this stuff. But, but all that does is prove that it was made by somebody very intentionally. You know, things like if the earth was, you know, one degree closer, it'd burn up. One degree farther away, it'd be a ball of ice, right? The, all, all of these types of scientific precise perfections for life to be and for things to work together. They all prove, in my opinion, and I think it's not just my opinion, it's the truth of God's word and it's the truth of reality that the universe was created. When people look around at all these things and they try and say, no, God didn't create the earth, there, there, there's nothing here. It's, it's the absolute order of, of things, the absolute order order of the way things depend on effect each, uh, affect each other in the natural world prove creation, right? It's just the age-old things, you know, it's like, oh, things evolved. You know, a fish became animals on the land. Well, at what point did the fish stop breathing water? Well, at what point did they not need the gills? Well, there was a transitionary, yeah, but during that transitionary time, how, how, did, how many, was it like that? Was it, I don't know, supernatural? I mean, it's, there's all these gaps in scientific theory. And God said in Romans, when people look around at, at, at the natural order of things, it speaks of a creator. It speaks of an intelligent design that there was intelligence behind the ordering of the universe. And our very limited personal experience of life and living within this order in the very brief time that we're here doesn't mean that, oh, just because I've never seen something happen in my short snapshot of life, that it's never going to happen. Just because I've never seen God wipe out the world in a flood doesn't mean it didn't happen and doesn't mean that God won't bring judgment again. That's kind of what Peter's getting at here. And he says they deliberately overlook it. That phrase means to willfully forget. Willfully forget. The more and more science marches forward, the more and more evidence is produced that supports a biblical, create, a biblical account of creation and earth and, and intelligent design, but they want to push all of this evidence aside. They want to push aside the truth that God created the universe so that they don't have to be accountable for their behavior. This is the reality of, of, of what happens in the world. Their thinking is if the world just randomly naturally evolved, and I just randomly naturally evolved, then whatever behavior I choose ultimately is just me living out my naturally evolved instinct. So therefore, there's no basis for anybody to tell me what I'm doing is wrong on any level. And we see this envelope constantly being pushed further and further and further in our society, right? 
Seems like every few years there's a new behavior that somebody went, why is that wrong? I want to do this. And society goes, no, that, that's, that's, that's wrong, that's immoral. But every few years there's something that everybody just generally accepted, that's immoral, that's wrong, that when enough people started going, why? I want to be able to do it. And then other people started going, yeah, why can't you do that? And then you get enough people voted into office to pass the laws and now say, yeah, no, as a matter of fact, everybody has to accept that you can do that. And it's just marching forward on this, this, this de-evolution of morality in our world. And the Bible told us that's what was going to happen. Get rid of God, get rid of the Bible, get rid of his standards. Man says, let us set our own standards and watch those standards steadily shift to worse and worse, more degenerate things, or as Peter said in, the, in chapter two, they, they devolve into fleshly desires and debauchery. And that's what's happening. And the reason they wanna deny the evidence and the truth that there's intelligence behind design, and you know what, God did create the earth and, and the universe is, per- they, wanna de- they wanna deny all of that so that they can keep pursuing things without having to feel accountable to anybody including God. It says that God spoke creation into existence by his word. That's what the word of God says. The record of this is in Genesis, right? When Peter says the earth was brought about from water and through water, it's speaking about how how God shaped the earth between two areas of watery mass. On, On day two of creation, it says that God separated the waters above from the waters below. Right? And if you get into studying this, it, it, it's understood that the waters above developed into like a, a water canopy that surrounded the earth, right? This vapor canopy that, that just had perfect create, uh, uh, conditions for, for um, fauna and, and, and plant life and all this stuff to grow. And the waters below became the seas and the rivers and the reservoirs and the lakes. And, you know, today, post-flood, the earth is still four-fifths four water, Water was a huge point in the original creation, but water was also a huge part of the original destruction as he gets into in verse six there. He goes, through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. That word flooded in the Greek is cataclyzo. What does that sound like? Cataclysm, cataclysm. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Where did all that water come from? I don't know, maybe in this vapor canopy that was above everything. But the idea is that this flood was a specific event where God interrupted the flow of history with a great cataclysm. The worldwide flood explains so much that would otherwise be inexplicable in our natural universe. Things like the presence of great inland seas that we have around the world, right? You have uh, in North America, Hudson Bay, and you have the Baltic Sea in Europe. You know, these inland seas. How did these big inland seas get there? It wasn't like somebody like got a bunch of buckets and hey, let's carry some water over here and create an ocean in the middle of the landmass. You have this area in North America called the Great Basin. It encompasses the, the entire state of Nevada, part of Southern California, part of Southern Oregon, and, and parts of Utah. And this area called the Great Basin, there's evidence that it was once a huge, massive inland sea, and, and they call it today Lake Bonneville for, for a guy that kind of discovered and, and did a lot of research there. But this, this inland sea covered over 20,000 square miles. Now, all that's left of it today is the Great Salt Lake up in Utah. But there's evidence in this area of shorelines 
where, the, where this great sea used to be. There's evidence there. Miles and miles and miles away from the Great Salt Lake, there's evidence that, hey, there was a shoreline here at one point. You have evidence of, of great forests around the world being suddenly compressed by water. And then as, as if you understand how coal is formed, right, there's this whole pressing of, 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 of fibrous material and then, and, you know, more sediment and all this stuff. But you have this evidence of these great forests being suddenly compressed and then layers of water, uh, layers of water-laid deposits on top of that. And you have these pockets of coal all over the planet. And it's only described if there was a sudden compaction of plant life. Then you have the fossil record, which just proves the incredible is proven, or it's evidence for this worldwide flood. And I don't have time to get on the details of how fossilization happens. There's a particular way things are fossilized. But we have found fossils of whales in Michigan. How did whales get to Michigan? We have found fossilized sharks in Ohio. You have fossilized fish in Wyoming at 7,000 feet above sea level, how'd they get up there? Well, you know, they developed little feet. <laughs> and you say me believing in creation by God is ridiculous, right? But then on top of that, you have, you have fossils that are out of order, right? Like when, when, when they study geology, they, they have these things called strata, right? And you have this strata of, of soil and rock, and then, you know, then there's another strata on top of it. And they use these to, to go, look, we're, we're going back in time. We can see the, the older age and the previous age and the previous age, right? And so they look at these, these strata of rock, and there, there have been strata of rock where they go, this is millions and millions of years. But then they find a fossilized tree that breaks through five layers at one time. Millions of years, why is there a fossilized tree splitting five of these layers? Anyways, this kind of sciencey stuff I enjoy. <laughs> but then on top of that, you got the cultural stories in just about every culture on earth that speak of some type of great flood in their ancient past. Peter says, look, there's plenty of evidence that a great cataclysm happened, that God intervened into human history at one point, but these people, they deliberately overlook it. They deliberately overlook it. Jesus said, as in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Do you think people in Noah's day were mocking him for building a boat? Absolutely they were mocking him. As he was out there preaching, judgment's coming. Mock, mock, mock. Scoff, scoff, scoff. So we look back at the scriptures to find our confidence in the truth, the, the reality that, that, that judgment day is coming. We look around at the scoffers today. Scripture said there's gonna be scoffers in the last days. We look around, everybody's scoffing. And when we look to the word, we know that the day of the Lord is coming. But ultimately, we look ahead to the Savior. Look at verse eight, 2 Peter 3, 8. We'll come back to verse seven in a little bit. He says, dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. Peter's telling us how to respond to the scoffers. How to respond to the scoffers. How to deal with the scoffers. How to, how to, how to get through each day with the people scoffing and pointing and laughing and making fun at your warning, at your offer of salvation to them. 
to escape the judgment to come. You know, what seems like a really long time to us is actually a very short time to God. When we look around our world today, it can be easy to, to start to agree with the scoffers, right? Especially when they go, it's been 2,000 years. When's he coming back? He's, you guys have been saying he's been coming back for 2,000 years. It's never going to happen. And we look around our world, and we look at the, the degeneration of morality, and we go, Lord, when are you coming back? Like, how much worse does it have to get, right? We, we, can, we can find ourselves tempted to start thinking that. Why is it taking so long for you to return, Jesus? What's the delay? 2,000 years, Lord, what's up? And we're still hoping, and we're still waiting, but sometimes, are the scoffers right? We have to understand that God, who is outside of time, counts things differently than us. We just have to understand that, right? For us, it's been 2,000 years. For God, it's been two days. Think about it. It's been two days for God in this concept of what Peter is saying here. But still, two days. Why the delay, Lord? Well, look at verse 9. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That is one of the most beautiful verses in all of the Bible. He's not delaying, as we understand delaying. What he means there is he's not putting it off because he can't come back, or he's not putting it off because he isn't coming back. He's waiting for everyone that'll get saved to get saved. I personally am very glad that he waited 2,000 years, because otherwise I would not have the opportunity to enjoy his salvation. I'm glad he waited for me. I am so thankful he waited for me. I'm glad he's patient. But he's also punctual. He hasn't come yet, but he will. And this is the warning to those that you don't know Jesus Christ in this room this morning or watching online. He's coming back. And he's coming back to judge sin and to judge those who participate in sin and who haven't received the salvation of their wrongdoing, that is Jesus Christ shed blood on the cross. And look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, meaning it's gonna be a surprise. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Now remember, I believe the day of the Lord is a time period, and so this is an encapsulation of the time period. It's not saying on the single day, the 24-hour period, all this stuff's gonna happen. It's an encapsulation of this time. But this time will come. It's coming. Scoffers may scoff. Doubters may doubt. Unbelievers will make fun. They'll diminish the truth. They'll try and put it down and make it a joke. They'll try and ignore it. But guess what? Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again, and he will be right on time. It's his time. But he will show up exactly when he means to. Verse 9, it said the Lord is patient, right? That's one of the great words of Scripture. He's patient. That word patient there means to hold your anger while enduring trying circumstances. Parents, you know what that means, right? Right? 
we all understand that to one degree or another, to hold your anger while enduring trying circumstances. What this means is that God has an amazing capacity to store up and hold on to well-deserved anger. Well-deserved. See, go back to verse seven. By the same word, the same word that he spoke creation to an existence, by the same word where he willed the, the world to be destroyed in the flood, by the same word the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The judgment of God is being stored up. God's wrath against sin, it's being stored up and he stores it up and he stores it up and he stores it up, but one day it'll finally spill out in judgment on sin. It'll finally spill out in judgment on sin and those who practice it. And that should scare you if you don't know the Lord. He has an amazing capacity, however, to wait and to wait and to wait and to hear the scoffers of every generation and to hear the false prophets and the false teachers create lies about him and, and work to lead people astray from the truth and to see bad things happen every day by bad people in this earth. But one day he will act. Until then, though, he's patient. I mean, the very fact that you and I have the ability today to discuss sin and to discuss salvation and to discuss forgiveness and judgment, that, to me, shows the great patience of God. Just like Abraham, right? Hey, if there's 50 righteous, all right, if there's 50, I'll wait. Well, Abraham knew the truth of that. Ooh, how about 40? Ooh, how about 30? All the way down. I'll get that one righteous one out. And he did. Got Lot and his family out of that place before his judgment fell. There was a young college student who had a conversation with his uncle, and his uncle said to the college student, what are you going to do when you get out of college? And the student was like, well, I'm going to go get a great job. The uncle was like, that, that's great thinking. Then what? The student said, well, then I'm going to launch my career, and then I hope to get married and start a family. And the uncle was like, you know, that's great planning. Get married, you know, put down roots, get your family started. That's great. Then what? And the student said, well, then I'm going to make my fortune and raise my family. Eventually, I'm going to retire and maybe buy a house out in the country somewhere and just enjoy life. And the uncle's like, wow, that, that sounds great. That sounds so enjoyable. Then what? And the student was like, uh, well, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, maybe that time I'll be pretty old and I suppose I'll die. The uncle said, yep. Then what? And the problem was is that college student had only thought about his life here, had not contemplated the life after. He hadn't really thought about the end of the line. Hadn't really thought about especially what happens at the end of the line, meeting the Lord Jesus himself standing before him and thinking, what will he say? And why is this important in our lives? Well, because when we start believing the truth of the other side, what's to come, the reality, until we start believing that, we don't really behave any different on this side. We don't really behave any different on this side. The reason we don't behave differently on this side, I think in many ways, is because we don't believe the truth of the other side. 
Maybe we don't believe judgment day is coming. And therefore, you dismiss everything. But the word of God is very clear and says, look, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ and you're dismissing all of this, it's really because you just want to keep living in sin. Just be honest. But if you keep living in sin, judgment day is going to come like a thief in the night one day and you won't be ready and it'll be too late. The scripture foretold it. The prophets spoke of it. The apostles, Jesus himself. The scoffers lend proof to what was foretold would happen because they're scoffing just like they said they would. But me personally, I'm not looking for the day of the Lord. I'm looking for the Lord of the day. That's what I want to look towards. As a believer, I am looking for the return of Jesus Christ. I'm looking for that day where he will just catch me up in glory, to take us in glory, whether it's by death or by rapture. That's what I'm looking towards, to be taken out before the judgment comes. And this is the warning to the world. World, judgment is coming. If you don't know Jesus Christ today, judgment is coming. The Lord is coming back, but the blessed hope for God's child the Lord is coming back. Amen? This blessed hope for the believer, it's all started at his first coming. It started at his first coming, and this is what we remember in our time of communion. All right, I find it encouraging that when Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room, right, when he instituted communion and, and did the bread and the juice and all of that that we're going to talk about in a second here, when he was up there in John 14, 3, he said, if I go away to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. So this morning, as we are gathered together to remember what Jesus did on the cross, to remember, to remember what he did through sharing communion together, we do it in great anticipa- anticipation of his return because he could return at any moment. I want to be ready. I hope you want to be ready. But before I do that, I want to address anybody in this room or anybody watching online that, that has never made a commitment to Jesus Christ. I urge you. I pray for you. I even beg you to stop treating lightly that which you should be taking very seriously. Your eternal salvation hangs on the question, is Jesus your Lord and Savior? This world will be judged. Eventually, we're going to get to the book of Revelation, and we're going to talk about that in great detail. But you have an opportunity this morning, before judgment comes, to get right with God. To get right with God and to receive the the salvation from that judgment, to receive forgiveness from God for all the sins you've ever done and ever will do. You have an opportunity this morning. He came 2,000 years ago to offer salvation to all of mankind, to all of the judgment of all mankind by dying on the cross, by dying in your place and taking upon himself the full wrath of God against sin. He suffered your punishment. He suffered my punishment. And he did this because he loved you so much. God Almighty created you. He knows everything about you, and he loves you dearly. He came to this earth to die in your place because the reality is is there's nothing you can do to pay the price for your sin on your own. 
He did this because sin has a grip on you and you, 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 you may have tried to stop doing certain things and, and, and you can't stop and you know that. Inevitably, you fall back, go back, or find something else because we're sinners to our core and our nature. And so he came to set us free from that which we can't set ourselves free from. And he hasn't come back yet. In 2,000 years since the cross, he hasn't come back yet because he wants you to have the opportunity to be saved this morning. He's patient, and he's been waiting for you so that you would have the opportunity to be forgiven, to be set free, to be loved. This morning is your opportunity. There may be others with us today that, that you've just been trusting in your own good deeds, right? Your own good works. Maybe you've created your own version of religion that, that seems to, you know, you think this satisfies the, the, the spiritual needs of your concept of God. Maybe you live your life thinking, I'm not a bad person or I'm, I'm definitely not as bad as the person next to me or that other person over there. But the Bible is very clear. If you sinned one time, if you've broken even one of God's standards one time, you're guilty. You're guilty. If you've ever told a lie, if you've ever taken something that didn't belong to you, if you've ever taken God's name in vain, the Bible says you're guilty. You're guilty. And when you stand before God, he's not gonna be like, oh, oh, you did 49 bad things? Well, 50's the threshold, so come on in. It's not what he's gonna say. He's gonna be like, you've broken my law. And the penalty is death. And if you don't accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will be found just as guilty as any other sinner on Judgment Day. And still, there may be some here in this room this morning, you remember a time, maybe when you believed all this stuff, a time where you were walking with the Lord, your walk was vibrant, you were full of Christ, you were excited for his return, but, but maybe sin has gotten back in the way. Things have gotten in that way and, they, and they've, they've crowded out your love for him. God is calling you this morning to say, come back to me. Come back to me. So we're gonna take a moment right now to, to give those here who, who need to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior or to recommit to him the opportunity to do so. And, and, and then after that, we'll take communion together as a body. So let's pray. Father, we know, God, the day is coming when you will take those who have put their faith their trust in you when you will take them into glory, God. We know that that day will come, but we also know, God, that there's a day coming, a day of vengeance, a day of wrath, a day of judgment. Father God, this morning I pray for anyone who hasn't made a commitment to Christ. God, that you would move in their hearts, that you would stir them to take a step this morning to receive you as their Lord and Savior. And so while we're praying, Heads bowed, eyes closed. I just want you, between you and God right now, to have this opportunity to say, I need to commit my life to Jesus Christ. And so wherever you're seated, while we're praying, I just want you to raise your hand so I could see it, so I know who I'm praying for. God bless you. Anybody else? God is speaking to you this morning. You know you need salvation. I see you in the back. God bless you too. Anybody else in this room? 
you know you have not received Christ as Savior or you know that you have strayed far from, from a confession you once made and you want to come back to him this morning, God is speaking to your heart in this very moment. Just raise up your hand so I can see it and let me pray with you here in a moment. If you're online, obviously I can't see you directly, but if you want to receive Jesus Christ this morning, wherever you're watching from, just in the chat say, I want to receive Jesus or click the button that says, I want to raise my hand. I think we have a button for that. Um, but let us know. So anybody else in this room, God is speaking to you this morning. You know you need to receive him. All right, Father, we pray for those, God, that have raised their hands and expressed a desire to to come to you in salvation, Lord, to recommit their lives to you. God, I pray for them. Lord, that your spirit would fill them to overflowing, that they would know from this day forward that they are truly saved, God, and that in you, Lord, They are saved from your wrath. They are forgiven for their sin. So for those of you that raise your hand or those of you online that express an interest, I just want you to pray this prayer with me. It's just a prayer of expressing your desire that God would be Lord of your life, that he would come in and and, and be your savior. And so repeat after me. Say, Lord, I give you my life. I know I'm a sinner, but I believe in Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for me, that he rose from the grave, that he is alive right now, and that he is coming again. I turn away from my past. I leave my sin behind me. I turn to you, Lord. I trust in Jesus Christ as my savior. I wanna live for you. Help me to do so. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, God bless you guys. We're gonna close right now and I'll, I'll be pretty quick here. I know we're running a little bit over, but those of you that just received Jesus Christ this morning, you get to participate in one of the most glorious things we do together as the body of Christ, communion. This is where we remember who Jesus was, what he did, and all of that. And so if you're in the room, you should have gotten one of these communion cups, okay? Um, If you're new, I want to explain it to you. There's like a thick plastic tab and a very thin plastic piece on top, okay? If you pull back that thin plastic piece very carefully, you'll expose the, the bread here. You know, when Jesus took the bread, it says that he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You know, he wanted us to remember. He wanted us to, to know and reflect on that, that this bread, it represents his sinless body, his perfect sinless body that was given for us. That's why the bread has no leaven in it, because leaven represented sin, and it puffs up, right? So there's no leaven in the bread. It represents how he took the full wrath of God, the judgment of sin upon himself, all sin and all unrighteousness. He took that judgment on him. It fell on him. That's why he broke the bread because his body was broken. God takes sin very seriously. And sin is what created a separation between us and him. And Jesus came to rebuild that bridge. But it was his body that God poured his wrath out on instead of us. You know, without his sacrifice, without what he did for us, we would have absolutely no hope because every sinful thought Every sinful action, 
every sinful cause, every sinful effect, all of it deserves the judgment of God Almighty. But because he loved you and because he loves me so much, he took that judgment on himself on the cross. That sacrifice, when we put our faith in him, perfectly reconciles and restores our relationship to God. And so, Father, we, we, we pray right now, God, as we remember your broken body. Lord, I pray especially, God, for those that have just received you as their Lord and Savior, God, and are getting for the first time the opportunity to, to celebrate this communion. God, we say thank you because sin warranted the wrath of God. But Lord, you loved us so much that you stepped into our place and you took it for us. And God, you were, you were horribly brutalized and beaten. The, 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 the brokenness that you took is, is the result of our sin, God. Our sin has, has broken our own lives. It's destroyed relationships, God. It's, it's sin entered the world and disease and death came, God. Sin just has wrecked everything. Yet, Lord, you stood in the way. You stood in the gap. and You took the wrath of God for us, and we're so grateful for that, Lord, because that is something we can never do. And so, Lord, we remember your broken body for us. Let's partake together. All right, and if you're in the room, this thicker tab now, you can pull that back very carefully and it'll expose the juice on the cup. Be very careful so you don't spill. You know, when Jesus took the cup, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. The old covenant required us to go back year after year and to make a new sacrifice and another new sacrifice and another new sacrifice over and over and over again. Because under that new covenant, we needed to learn, we needed to know that no matter how many times we made a sacrifice, at the core, at the depth of our hearts and who we are, we are still sinners. Now the blood of that old covenant was a temporary covering. And it was an obedience to God for those who did it. But when Jesus came, he said, look, my blood that is perfect, that is spotless, that is sinless, is going to be shed once for all, for all time. And this is the new covenant by your faith in me and my shed blood. You didn't just avoid the wrath of God, but you are then now washed clean. You are made clean. And he wanted to remember, wanted us to remember that in him, through him, because of him, we are clean. We are made spotless. We have a clean record now and we can live each day from, from, from that point of our salvation forward and we remember this in communion that we live each day forgetting our past, forgetting our old ways, turning from that, for, forgetting our old selfish nature and we look forward to our glorious future with him in heaven which we can't wait for. We live in eager anticipation of his coming knowing that today his coming is nearer than it ever has been. And that fellowship that is going to be perfectly and fully restored in heaven is because of the blood he shed for us. Again, doing a work we couldn't do. And now we get to live a life in gratitude for the work he did. 
in thankfulness for the work he did, not trying to earn his affection, but knowing we already have it. We're his children. He loves us. So we get to take each day, each step, saying, God, be glorified in my life because you have made me clean. And so therefore, God, I want the world to see you in my life and everything I do. We remember that because he shed his blood for us and we've accepted his sacrifice on our behalf, we are children of God. Beloved, saved, transformed for his glory. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much, Lord, for your shed blood. Lord God, we know that judgment's coming. But God, until it comes, you've given us an opportunity to be saved from it, God, and it's your blood that washes us clean, Lord. You not only took the wrath, Lord, but then you made us into something that we weren't and we couldn't be on our own, Lord, righteous. Without a spot of sin, without any blemish of any kind, God, and it's because of your blood that you shed for us, and we thank you for that, God. We are so grateful. Help us to live lives that glorify your name in every way, Lord. Let's partake together. Father God, we know that there has always been difficulty. There has always been heartache and there's always been tribulation on the earth. But all of it collectively is nothing like what is coming. Father, we rest in the fact that you have already spoken through your prophets. You've spoken through the records of the apostles. You've spoken through Jesus Christ himself, Lord. You spoke to us repetitively and clearly announcing what that period of history is going to be like. You've told us about it. You've warned us about it. You've told us to get ready for your return. You told us to trust in you, God, and and God, we do that. We trust in you, Lord Jesus. We pray that you would help us live our lives in dependence on you every day. Not getting dull in our living or our thinking, but eagerly waiting for the moment when you come back for us, Lord. But in the meantime, God, help us to be lights for the gospel, lights for hope, lights for truth, Lord. That those who don't know you, God, would also be able to escape the judgment. We thank you for loving us so much, Lord. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, guys, let's worship.